0: came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response.
1: Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place.
2: Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding.
1: And I am Xenia Chmutina.
2: This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen.
1: Thank you for tuning in. Hi. Hello. Hi, Jason. Hey. Hello. I, I, Hello. I, I, I have this problem every live stream. So you know when the countdown goes, I sit and hum and I never know when it's going to finish. And I'm always worried that one day we'll start and I'll be humming and that'll be really unpleasant for all involved.
2: That would be great. I think you should. So, like I told you in the previous episode, like I'm usually like dancing to the music or something. And then all serious when we come on, you know?
1: So serious. Okay, so ne- next time maybe we should like have a trio dance. I
2: think everybody wants to see that.
1: Everybody wants to see that. That's what you got involved in to Little did you know (laughs) (laughs) the madness unfolds. Anyway, well, we're back and now we're finally reading books. very very exciting.
2: Yeah. Today we start, we start discussing the books that everybody helped us choose. So thanks again for everybody for voting on the polls on Twitter. And we definitely didn't choose any light reading for everybody. And our first book, I think has certainly for me expanded my mind and caused me some trouble with my brain. (laughs) So we're starting our discussions today. In our first episode with Camillo, we talked about the importance of critical theory and and maybe what we might say is a lack of critical engagement with this kind of theory and disaster studies and that's kind of the impetus for our reading and our conversations and we've also talked about the importance of reading outside of our field and i think hopefully everybody participating finds this to be a healthy exercise i certainly wouldn't trade it you know i'm so grateful that i started to read outside of my field and so for the next four episodes the three of us and some other guests are going to discuss the books that you helped us choose earlier in the year.
1: Yeah, and this is really exciting. So hopefully we, we will have guests joining us later today. I had some technical issues, but let's see, you know, by this price. But anyhow, so the first book that you've all helped us choose was Malcolm Ferdinand's, uh, you can see it, right? The Colonial Ecology, Thinking from the Caribbean. So let's start, you know, we have a lot to talk about. We had a quick chat about it as we are preparing for, the, for, for this live stream. And I guess it would be great if Camilo, who made the suggestion to include this book, so we all blame Camilo for our head hurting today. So could you tell us a bit more about the book and why you thought it would be a great fit for the season?
0: Okay, thanks. Thank you, especially for blaming for the blaming role that I have, which is. Very nice Thank you. Thank you. It's where to start. For several reasons. The first encounter I, is very personal. The first encounter I have with the book was an original interview in a blog, actually, when the French edition was out. And I remember that Malcolm Ferdinand was kind of interviewed in an exchange blog when the first uh, version was out in 2019, so quite early. And I remember that I was captured with with the blog for, for two reasons. The first reason was the title, very basic. And the title I think is a sort of very interesting position or statement in relation to what we were discussing last time on the need to expand the provincial, include other forms of epistemologies and knowledge in relation to critical theory in general, and specifically critical disaster studies more specifically so the provincialization you know start what malcolm says start thinking from the caribbean and actually from the hurricanes of the caribbean as actually a very logical very physical but also very historical tempest which is a metaphor that he use in the book it's to me one of the reason why i found in very interesting in this book Now, whether the connection with the disaster is kind of metaphorical, if you want, but it's also very specific for the territorial compositions of the Caribbean per se. The second reason of the colonial option of the critique, which is a deliberate action, has to be related to the fact that he overlaps directly, without hesitation, Critical racial studies and a critique of colonial thinking, periodization histories, Black life uh, literature. So the origin and the responsibility of colonial, in addition, overlapping with environmental dimension, are tangible too. So what we know now in the literature connected with the plant I've scene, the Capitalocene, so mm-hmm. all these Anthropocene versions of the critique. And I found that in the text he did it kind of very deliberately and very usefully, overlapping two very different fields of, of research and study. Of course, in a very engaging prose, in a very fantastic organization of the book. So the reason actually was a fascination for the composition of a possible interesting work. And the third and reason probably is again around the title which is again the use of ecology which i think in both the studies and critical thinking is again a very fundamental component of an arena of reflection so in a way moving from environment to ecology moving from space to relation moving from you know being to entanglement as a sort of more diverse scholar responsibility, ethics, and politics, for me, remain, you know, a fundamental <clears throat> component or perimeter of critical thinking whatsoever. So those were the three kind of reasons why for me was a very interesting suggestion. And I'm glad that you and the public and the audience have helped us to, you know, to select at least as a first question.
1: Yeah, for sure. and I'm glad that you chose it. I. Have heard about this book before, but it kind of just didn't make it to my bookshelf somehow, you know, among all the other books. And then after you've mentioned it, I ended up with two copies, as as you do, right? So J. C. Gaillard benefited from my greed of book buying. (laughs) Jason, so what did you think? As you,
2: I share a problem with book buying with you, Sonia, obviously. (laughs) No, no. I, I have several like multiple copies of things because, like, I I buy things like from Verso or Haymarket and then I end up getting second copy from the book's club subscription, right? Anyway, this, these are the problems we can deal with. With face, yeah. I thought, it's, I thought it's an incredible book and it just really just made me think every page. You know, there's so many concepts in there and I really like the way that Malcolm Ferdinand like used italics to like highlight important concepts to focus my attention on certain things, I I thought that was really helpful for me to navigate the book because it's a very like deep and intense reflection. The way that he uses theory and metaphor and story is like part of what makes it hard to process, but it's rich, you know, so I didn't mind the fact that it was hard and I'm going to have to read it again probably several times to fully grasp some of the connections and the metaphors. The metaphor of the ship, I just really appreciated the different types of ship and the way that he built towards this idea of a world ship. You know, from the the metaphor of Noah's Ark and the slave ship, I just thought really fit in well to the theory that he was trying to build and the kind of analytical framework that he's working with. And he, I need to spend more time with the figures, but things like this figure, I don't know if you can see,
1: what page? Tell For the world the table. Yeah,
2: yeah, the table from 203 that he has several of those through the book that are really helpful and I need to, I would like to spend more times with time with, but the use of diagram, the use of metaphor, I think just really invite readers to like think creatively and like get into the vibe of the book and kind of lose yourself in exploring. And I think another thing that struck me was the way that he was challenging how we got here, gene modernity, and the, the way that we form disciplines and the way that we form canons of literature and genealogies. And he did that in, in a way by critiquing, you know, how we got to the way we talk about environmentalism and the way that we talk about ecology in the mainstream. Um and how that kind of fits with a western northern narrative about the purity of nature and so on going back to like Thoreau and like exploring that nature in that sense of kind of pristine wilderness and um how we're still kind of attached to that and he builds into that like the narrative of Noah's Ark being very dominant you know and i I like the politics of that and he talks about the politics of boarding the policy and then On the other hand, the politics of disembarkation. So there's just so much in there that's like new to me that is incredible. But I just want to finish with like talking about at the end of the book where he actually has a very hopeful take on a world ship and how he kind of connects all of these, all of these injustices and all of these ways of thinking that are perpetuating the same problems into a very hopeful narrative in the final part of the book, which is really to just talking about how we can form a new relationship with the earth. Like he called, he talks about inhabitation, new ways of inhabiting. And which is based on some of the stuff that we talk about all the time about care and about solidarity and about shared vulnerabilities. You know and vulnerability as a as potential and and then he just kind of leaves you with some questions about how do people who have been oppressed come into relationship with their oppressors and to me that links back to some of the other things we're going to talk about with Freire. but the, those are big questions and there's no easy answers but for me there's just it leaves me with so much to think about i really appreciated the book even if it was some of it was just I need to get back to it on a second read.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I concur, you know, the, this book as I started reading, it kind of really broke my brain, you know, but like in a good way. I will need to go back to it, as Jason, you said it, and kind of read it again and again to really comprehend it. And I had to read every single word, every single sentence, which I don't do normally, right? I'm kind of I'm a fast reader, I'm very much a skin reader. And this book certainly didn't allow for that because it is so engaging and it is so deep. And I kept wondering, what it's like to read it in French so if any of you in the audience have read this book in French please let us know I'm just so so curious you know how much the translation has violated what Ferdinand had to say originally and what the differences would be okay, something that the idea of translation really fascinates me and also what I really appreciate is that I felt that he really highlighted the Caribbean in a sense that This is where the globalization in its capitalist sense has become, right? In kind of that globalization that is based on racism that is still so prominent today. And first of all, what really captured me before I even started reading the book is, of course, the cover. And so here Ferdinand uses Turner's picture called Slave Sheep. And this is the painting of the massacre that took place on the zone in 1781. And of course, have to go and research all about this painting because I was really quite curious to, to understand why that was the cover for the book. And so what happened is basically the crew anticipated the water shortage because due to different navigation errors there, the trip has been extended. And the slavers, as probably most of you know, they had kind of an insurance called perils of sea, which compensated their loss and that loss included enslaved people in case of extreme weather events, right? Or it was kind of, basically, it was more economically beneficial for the slavers to throw the enslaved people overboard than to share the remaining supplies of water with them. And so more than 140 enslaved people were murdered, and this is what this painting, right? And this this cover captures. And I, I love how Ferdinand makes a parallel between this painting, the Turner's painting, and the climate crisis that all of us are facing, right? So have we decided or are we deciding to just be selfish and protect our own interests, right? And just enjoy the supplies that we have now, enjoy our lifestyle, even if it means that we sacrifice everything around us and everyone around us. And then of course, this whole idea of the storm, right? That Camilo said this already, that has shaped the history of modernity alone, a double fracture. And so uh, this idea of double fracture kept captured me, really captured my imagination. So on one hand, we have this environmental fracture that is driven by technocratic kind of capitalist civilization. Right. And that keeps keeps adding to the ongoing climate crisis, keeps adding to kind of ongoing devastation. And then on the other hand, we have a a colonial fracture, which is, of course, instilled by Western colonialism, by Western realism and resulted in slavery and domination. And if I may, because I'll always do so, I just want to read this paragraph that was kind of wow for me. And this is from the chapter called The Colonial Hurricane. It's the end of this chapter, the end of part one. The colonial hurricane shows that the ecological crisis is not a complete reexamination of the world. On the contrary, it reinforces colonial domination and oppression. Hurricanes accelerate the world, contract it, stretch it, and reveal its structural fractures as well as radicalize its lines of non-sharing, lines which differentiate with whom the world is shared and with whom it is not shared. Yes, climate change is the consecration of the prosperous of the world, those who profit from disasters and the continuation of the suffering for the Calibans and the Ariels of the earth. As described by and Shakespeare, the climatic tempest is born out of the master's exploitation of the enslaved through a capitalist production laden with greenhouse gases, which widen social inequalities and perpetuate injustices that are openly admitted to. So what ship are we going to build in the face of the storm? And that, you know, when I read that, I was just like, wow, this is perhaps the best summary of what is happening with us now and how we could act on it. So yeah, thanks, Camila, for choosing the book.
0: Well, thank you. I think if I can, the are two issues. The first one is, again, I love what is happening which is reading through and within and with uh, other people. And this gesture of collective reading, even if this from a distance, even if he's in different time zone, it's is a truly privilege to think with other people, the author specifically, but also with all the audience yourself. And I think this coming back to the text uh, is also not a sign of limitation, but actually is one way of enriching the readings that we are having. So the reading, the deep reading, the, is not an extractive, if you want, way of engaging with literature and thinking, but is really a collective, I mean, Fred and, you know, Harney and Moden use the undercom on this idea of the study rather than the reading. As a more deep engaging with you know text and reflection, which I do believe actually is what we're doing actually, or attempting to do, or actually eventually suggesting to our students or our the people who works with us, which is to study to engage with others' people thinking and actually thanking for them, we'll see that in others' option. So I absolutely agree with what you said. Let me say, just because you started with, with the cover and with the Zong and with Turner, which, by the way, the book is all full of aesthetics, uh, references to poetry. To, for those who haven't read it, it is a moment in which each chapter is open with the name of a ship. And this is not only, a, I think, a very powerful archival construction of a, a different archive of thinking, both historical, but also to reposition that centrality of the colonial, the black Atlantic trade and the colonial as a fundamental historical gesture. This is connected with other works like you know, Vito Chandra Bharti or Christina Sharp or Alex Willander. So there is a numbers of new literature that you know reposition this what matter as a beginning of the story and the origin of an historical reflection outside Europe, outside the conventional Western thinking. And this is absolutely fundamental. Again, the colonial in nature, critical as the logic but there is numbers of others you know the reference to the painting turner specifically and others there was a word maybe that is worth to to mention which is the ships i think is more than a metaphor the ship to me is a figure both historical and this is very fundamentally historical but also it's kind of a door an entrance i don't know how to, to define is the way ferdinand enter the story and enter to the environment to the ecology. It's kind of a door, right? A place he tell us a story and actually construct a very convincing, I would say, story. So the ship is actually to me something very not only very physical, but also very historical. So is beyond the metaphorical dimension. I found it that whether the tempest probably is more an affective dimension that he tried to connect with, you know, the crisis and you render absolutely... Let me maybe uh, cite a, a word I have uh, towards the end in the epilogue. He says something that I found extremely uh, interesting. And he says, the modern tempest is still raging. And the ship reproduced the same gesture as the Zong, the cover, abandoning, enslaving or throwing overboard the part of Earth and humanity, which is what you were seeing. And later, as she says, to the environmental urgency that will limit global warming and halt the destruction of the Earth ecosystem, I, Ferdinand, ask this equally urgent action. Global restitution of wealth and social injustice, the colonial task of recognizing a different dignified place in the world for first people and those who were formerly colonized, racialized, and third, an equal and social political consideration for women, especially women of color mm-hmm. of former European ecology. So, yes, ecology is above all an issue of justice. And this intersectionality, to a certain extent, which Fit very well with you know the grip project around which we are all constructing this uh, dimension, but also a fundamental intersectionality as a gesture of critical thinking. So beyond discipline, beyond historical regimes or horizon, beyond geographical dimension, and beyond you know cultural or intellectual tropes. Mm-hmm that we are used. So the ecological crisis as a crisis of justice is to me a very fundamental dimension that opens a lot of interesting readings to the disaster studies per se, which normally are technocratic, normally are problem-oriented, less intersectional to a certain extent. We do believe has another door or another entry point for a fruitful discussion, of course.
1: I think it's really interesting how you describe the sheep as a kind of, as a door. I haven't thought about this. I I really like this parallel. But I also felt in some places, you know, particularly when it's kind of, the parallel with Noah's Ark, right? That the sheep is that Western savior that is there to save, and I use quotation marks, the environment, right? Because it, it will come and it will choose whom to save, right? Be that people or species, humans or species, because such is our privilege, right? As as the West. And I found that quite disturbing as I was reading the book, because I must admit I wasn't familiar with all the with all the literature that Ferdinand refers to. You know, of course kind of Shakespeare's more or less given, but some of it was quite challenging. So I had to go and read up on this. But Noah's, for his well-known, and, and yeah. thinking about it through the way that he describes the crisis and through the way that he describes kind of colon, colon, coloniality and decoloniality made it much more sinister, I think, in, in, in my eyes.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it's also like the blindness to To that as well that we see all around us and like the dominant narratives around like both disaster and climate change like coming back to what you said Sonia, about the tempest like i think it not only applies to how we talk about the climate crisis but it applies to narratives about disaster and what's really happened both in terms of the risk that's being created but also like who who benefits in the recovery and who like who even benefits from the tempest itself right because in the examples that ferdinand was using there is clear beneficiaries in in like creating the tempest. there is a function, there is a function to it it serves certain interests and we see that in in disasters too that not everybody is very disappointed in a disaster event right but at the, and at the same time in the aftermath of a disaster in a recovery stage, we know that it's not the people who need it the most that benefit or who who re- recover or are who get access to the most recovery resources. So
1: mm.
2: yeah, I, I think that's a really powerful narrative in this. And it's really closely linked to what we all study and many of our listeners who are in disaster, different disaster studies domains. Yeah, I
1: agree. You know, I kind of I guess many people asked us as we were doing the selection for the books right what is the relevance to disaster studies and that was the whole point of the exercise to to read out but actually as i started reading this book i felt that this is you know this could be a disaster disaster studies textbook right that kind of all students of disaster scholarship should read and scholarship and practice because we know that disasters and social oppression always go hand in hand, right? One, that they're inseparable, that they're always together. But yet we urge to, to tackle disasters, right? To reduce disaster risk using the slogans that are kind of devoid of social thought, like build back better, be resilient. I don't know what else. We could come up with millions of slogans, right? That there is no social cohesion, there is no social thought. And this of course allows, and we discussed it so many times before, this kind of co-optation, of the of the environmental i guess imperative and also but instead it advocates for very technocratic very top-down response so we are going to combat disaster risk right and we will do it through i don't know geoengineering I'm, i'm just making it up everybody knows that i have no idea about geoengineering. and so but basically what to me this book kind of really showed in the context of thinking about it from disaster studies point of view is that we can really get caught in a very technocratic reading of a disaster as a problem, right? And so what we then do is we offer the solution that completely ignores the other as in a subaltern, right, to, to use Gramsci's word here, because we never stop and ask, what the subalterns actually want, you know. So, do they want the land to be decontaminated? And I'm using an example that Ferdinand uses quite a lot here, right? Is does this mean the contamination of the land, a, a, a justice that that they were fighting for, right? Or do they just want to change the way that lands are actually inhabited, and that should have had happened five hundred years ago? Yeah. So, Camilo, what do you think? Like, how do you kind of well, frame this book from disaster studies point?
0: I of? think I I couldn't do better than what is written in the forewords, and let's remember that the English trans the English version of the book has a forewords of Angela Davis. You know, everybody knows, in the very opening of of the forewords, which is more than a praise of the book, is really. What I found to answer your question is, and I'm reading. Whoever recognizes how entangled we are in the chaos of contemporary Russian capitalism with its heteropatriarchal contours, and whoever is attempting to imagine emancipatory future in ways that do not privilege a single component of the crisis, will greatly benefit from spending time with the text, Ferdinand call us on to embrace holistic method of inquiry and response to crisis grounded into the interdependency that constitute all of us, plants, human and other animals, the soil, the ocean, while recognizing that racism has deposited white supremacy at the very hearth of our notion of the human. I think this is, for me, is somehow possible link with kind of an agenda, if you want, of the disaster study. So intersectionality, no problem for sure, definitely go ahead, but also this idea of, you know, post-humanism in the, in a broader sense, disasters are often lacking or more recently trying to engage with all the debate about post-humanism and definitely more with the social justice debate, specifically from a numbers of geographies that we know. I do believe that is certainly an element, but also methodologically, I would say. And I think, you know, part of the books of Remember Me, part of the book of Mimi Scheller, on the island uh, in disasters mm. uh, in uh, always in the Caribbean. Remember me reading some points of Lisan on the opacity in the island. I think that there are numbers of connection. But why methodologically? Because methodologically engage with an un, un, unsaid story or overlooked stories and also mixing different sources of the form. The fact that we often overly rely on social science methods versus others' methods, being historical, being visual, being artistic or creative, I think the multi-methodology of the inquiry around disasters, the aftermaths and the con- con- constructions of social spatial vulnerabilities to me remain very central. So it's kind of a suggestion of how to do it. Uh, you know, probably we won't be able to do it as well as Malcolm Fernand does, but certainly opening for that uh, reaction. And the third maybe uh, the point which is probably more close to my scholarship and what I'm interested in is that he definitely used Part of the word that I'm using, which is the word of inhabitation rather than habitat or space, he draw on definitely on Heidegger version of you know you know inhabiting in a more complex becoming heathered dimension. But that I found it extremely interesting. Inhabiting you know the crisis is a way of you know finding. Uh, relation and the relation with, with the problem. He cited a Haraway a couple of times in Mm -hmm. this entanglement I mentioned, but this notion of inhabitation and basically he has this, this kind of framework of a colonial inhabitation towards decolonial inhabiting. I found it extremely interesting because you cannot call for the colonial critique without calling for a different future. You have actually to dig in the past to highlight elements of that possibility. So different archive for a different future is not different future with the same archive, which I found it extremely interesting, especially for as people like me studying more territorial, spatial, architectural or urban conditions. Yes, the connection are probably not so evident, although for a rapid reader, you know, the Caribbean, the hurricane is also connected very directly with the disaster. He cites and work with Katrina hurricane Mm -hmm. uh, directly, you know, connecting specifically that point that Jason was making about, you know, who gained for and from, and the inequality of that. So I agree with you is a very interesting, and let me close with something that I found it interesting, which is the, in the, the, you know, the series of the book where polity in Polity, which is the publisher that publishes the book is, is very interesting. It's titled critical. So use the word critical, which are all thinking about, but also displays the notion of critical from a Southern perspective, from a perspective of the South, which is not a geography by the way, but is a way of looking you No, know, the situatedness dimension of the version, which I, again, think for many of us, this is a source of inspiration of how to engage with different territorial and conceptual articulation of work and reinforce the idea that decolonial is a form of criticism among the many, among different tradition, but certainly is one way of engaging <clears throat> with the
2: framework of a critical reflection. I think that's so true. And for disaster scholarship, it's an important thing to, to reflect on because A lot of the scholarship is very, you know, eurocentric, north-centric, white. And so we have, we have a lot of work to do to, to deconstruct like why that is and challenge it and do the work. Right. And, and I think there's a lot of pushback to that from like the kind of dominant disciplines, even professors and so on, because that's threatening to the power structure. And so, I, but it's encouraging to see people making inroads on that and, and putting some challenges forward, um, you know, including through rate and other, me- other mechanisms. One thing I, I wanted to read something from the, from the world ship section, because it just really, it connected with like a lot of stuff that I'm thinking about vulnerability and that we're writing about Senya, And he's talking about forming a body in the world. And just, just to connect this with what you were saying, Camilla, about inhabitation. Earlier in the book, he was talking about how, you know, the possibility of in co-inhabitation was taken off the table, you know, for in a plantation situation. And so there was a possibility for co-inhabitation with other Christians, you know, but that was the limit. Like we may have our disagreement, but we're fellow Christians and like colonists and slavers, but co-inhabitation with those who are enslaved was not even a possibility. But Malcolm Ferdinand comes back to the worldship idea. And I'm reading from page 207 and he says, I quote, forming a body in the world means acting in light of how our vulnerabilities are interdependent and transforming the global institutions and economics that collectively impose in a sense, a way of consuming the earth and not living together. From school canteens to supermarkets, from public energy politics to public transportation, from international agreements on the import and export of agricultural products to national contracts of arms sales to import policies for uranium and other minerals. Acting in the world is the path to finding our bodies again. This collective action allows us to form a body, to recover our bodies in the misogynistic and racist nets of the world and to protect them from the environmental injuries of a plantation economy guided by a globalized capitalist market. And so it's like, like I said earlier, it's like a hopeful aspirational view towards what, what we can achieve when we recognize our interdependencies. But all of that, I think it's quite wonderful is built on this very cutting critique, of the current things that we're trying to do to like quote unquote, like save ourselves or to save the planet, you know? and how that's not really getting us any closer to recognizing our interdependencies, right? Okay. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and that, that, that is the last sentence, right, of the world ship before the epilogue. The world ship carried by yesterday's struggles, the reading of today's world ship allows us to draw the horizon of a world of tomorrow. And that is such a beautiful, kind of hopeful future, right? That that we can achieve. But will we, right? This is going back to this kind of to, to that double fracture. Are we are we selfish enough not to enjoy, right? That kind of the horizons of tomorrow. And looking at how things unfold, I think we are. And you know, Camille, you were talking about the kind of the space and temporal aspects and the boundaries. And that made me think about the chapter where Ferdinand writes about the violence of the black blank pages, right? The kind of the paradise, what we call now from our kind of Western eyes that were in fact destroyed to be created into a paradise. And he writes, and so this is the chapter paradise or hell in the nature Preserves, That paradise is established by expulsion from the world. While nature reserves are important tools in a panoply of economical ecological action, sorry, they are transformed into hell as soon as they're cleared of worldly concerns. Environmentalism, which focuses only on what happens within the boundaries of the reserves, therefore finds itself at an impasse. It conceals the world, the very world that made these reserves necessary. And that that that, that description of the boundaries that captures the disaster right as it kind of unfolds in that one temporary space as we see I feel it's just it's just so strong because we perhaps in disaster this is where the problem is right we put too many boundaries but we don't understand how these boundaries or we don't want to understand who enforces these boundaries and why they're there in the first place
0: yeah yeah you're right no I agree but I think this goes back to this I found this double fraction put it in this Mm -hmm. way and i think metaphor or the logic of the double fraction is still remain in in our very present i think that is super or if you want the ambivalence of this double fraction of tension between the saving and the sharing between the construction of garden and the construction of paradise and hell, i think that remain a very fundamental gesture of our current, present, I do believe that the tension between this Promethean forward solution-driven dimension is certainly one of the rhetorical or the discursive dimension that we are having. Therefore the double fraction is for me, again, is living that ambivalence, but also is being aware that you are always in the fault of, you know, going there. So there's not only a process towards emancipation, the conventional critical theory, logic of Frankfurt, you know, you have a solution, you hope for a better future, technological, modern, safe, and so on. But you always have to come with the different narratives to the present. And I think that double fraction, I mean, the book constructed as a double fraction, again, use the force of man in general, or the force of intellect, the prophets, the philosopher, the right, the technician, disaster management, you know, you name it to the man in that sense. And I think that is to me, I find very interesting, although there is a, probably if, uh, just to make a very kind of possible critique. There is a, one of the chapter where he, I think is engaged into this plants, animal, new alliances towards the end, I think it's chapter 12, which is very fascinating, very interesting, but then goes back to the justice paradigm mm. uh, towards the conclusion. And so intellectually speaking, intellectually or is it justice or a different forms of justice and a coexistence that we have to look and how the justice paradigm is connected with a sort of multi-species logic. What I found it interesting is that the kind of refuse the logical restitution i mean this doesn't work restitute what to whom were so the restitution is kind of a safe place a safe heaven again constructed by and i think is it very interesting the, this kind of ambivalence towards towards the end i wonder whether what would be the next book that an author like they would write after a book like this mm. one. i'm very if we would never have an opportunity to ask to malcolm what would, what are you what he's working on now after this so powerful and engaging book would be? I would be very curious to know what's the next, especially because Foucault was saying that you know you you end one book and you start with another one and the one you start is always connected with the one that you have just finished. Very poetic way of saying that you work on one things and you normally <laughs> try to connect and doing only one. I'm very curious to know what uh, Malcolm is doing, because I think his tra- the trajectory that he paved methodologically, mm. intellectually, but also the double fraction as a gain of ambivalence of the present, I, I think put us in a different, more vulnerable, just to use Jason's word, position also ourselves. So not having a solution mm. or you know living with a different arrogance of the solution, put it in this way.
1: Indeed, well, hopefully there will be a next book soon. Yeah. And- We'll get hopefully we'll get an opportunity to get together and discuss it because this is a lot of fun. Thank you so much again. Thank you, Camila, for suggesting this book, and thank you to the audience for helping us choose this book. It's been wonderful. I agree with you wholeheartedly in that reading book as a kind of collective exercise is somewhat much more fulfilling, and it makes me personally realize a lot of things that I perhaps uh, couldn't grasp on my own. And it's that, that is the power of, of discussion, so thank you both for indulging me today, it, it's been wonderful. And so before we finish, just let me remind you about the books that we are going to read in the next few weeks. So in two weeks' time, we are reading Max Ernst's Pollution is Colonialism, so that's on the 14th of September when Camilo is back again with us, and Naomi Gonzalez-Bautista will hopefully join us as well to discuss this book. We will then be discussing Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of Indignation and we will finish sub-series, I guess, with Silvia Federici's Patriarchy of the Wage. So if you haven't started reading those books, do read them. They're short but powerful, you know, they do require some thought as this book has required. And also, we also want to know what you are reading. And so please join our audience episode and tell us about your favorite book. Send us a short audio clip and jason and i will include it in our wrap-up episode which will come out in the end of october and as always follow us on twitter and on any podcast apps these episodes are now gradually being released as audio episodes so thank you jason for doing that and we hope you enjoy season seven see you in a couple of weeks thank you
0: thanks everyone thank you thank you everyone thank you malcolm bye-bye
2: well thank you all for being with us today And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast.
1: You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon.
2: The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe.
1: And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you.
2: You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.